Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning to you, whichever is right for you, wherever you are, and whenever you are. Welcome to this episode of Marriage and Family Clinic. Whether you're listening from a state other than Virginia, or even a country other than the United States of America, I want to welcome each and every one of you to this broadcast. You're listening to us on WGPL, WPCE, and WBXBAM here in Southern Virginia and Northeastern North Carolina. We are also heard on the internet at www.christianbroadcastingcompany.com. And if you would like this or any other broadcast, you can find the podcast by searching The C.D. Hodges. The C.D. Hodges. You can search that on iTunes or any podcast player on your smart device. You'll find Marriage and Family Clinic. That's right. Just search The C.D. Hodges. You'll find us on iTunes or any podcast player. Marriage and Family Clinic is here to help you break down and gain enlightenment into your relationship dynamics. We hope to help you identify what makes you tick and ultimately help you repair, grow, and perfect your marriage and family relationships. We are all about the family. And even in this day of social unrest, as we see people marching the streets, as we're pulling down statues, burning buildings, uh, doing all of the protests. There's something that I hope we don't forget as black people. And that is we need to be about the family more than anything else. Let's not forget our families. Include our families in this newfound social energy, as it were. We need help in the families. And that's why we're here at Marriage and Family Clinic. We're here to help you with your family and marriage, family uh, relationships and dynamics. Now, before we get going today, I want to give a special shout out to a, uh, a pretty special person over in Okinawa, Japan. That's Sister Tiffany Benchen. She may be listening to us tonight. Just want to give a shout out to her. Uh, she lives in Okinawa, associated with the United States military. Just a jewel of a person. God bless you, Sister Benjamin. So glad to have you in my corner. And keep up the good work for us. You know, every now and then I like to pause my programming and conduct a question and answer session. I think Q&A sessions, uh, those are fantastic opportunities. It's a fantastic time to put into application some of the things that we discuss on this program. The, the Q&A session, we ask those questions and get the answers. We, we hear how the information that I'm passing to you actually applies to our everyday living because everyone out there, every one of us, we're, we're living real situations here. And we're living situations that require real answers. And sometimes you can find an answer that you need that fits your situation. And sometimes it takes a lot of searching and a lot of digging and a lot of uh, uh, striving and struggling to find the answer that you need. But today is such a day that we have this question and answer session, hopefully to provide some knowledge to some questions out there, help clear up some ambiguity in somebody's mind. Uh, we just want to help you out in that way today. Now, a few days ago, I sent out an announcement asking for any questions that have to do with marriage and family relationships. Well, I received a few that I'd like to speak to briefly on tonight. Uh, let's look at some of those questions. Some of those questions uh, go like this. Number one, 
When a minister has been delivered from the past transgressions in his marriage and it's time for elevation, how can he go about securing his wife's confidence that they will be okay in the new season? When a minister has been delivered from past transgressions in his marriage and it's time for elevation, how can he go about securing his wife's confidence? that they will be okay in the new season. Wow, what an awesome question that is. Now, I'm hearing a few things here. Apparently, this minister, or either he or someone that he knows, uh, had a serious mess up, caused it a transgression, but he says that he's been delivered. So hopefully that means his mind is changed about the behavior and he won't do it again. And by elevation, I'm assuming this person means that he expects to be ordained or to become a pastor or to be consecrated to the bishopric or something similar to that uh, because he speaks of an elevation in the ministry. Uh, I don't want to read too much into this, but I just want to try and make a story out of it uh, because it's a really relevant question. Because you're in the ministry, you're not immune to messing up. And I want everybody to know that. Hear me here. Because you're in the ministry, you're not immune to messing up. And I want people to understand that their spiritual leaders, their pastors, their overseers, whatever the case may be, they are yet human and they are not immune to messing up. So I appreciate the question coming from my brother here. Uh, so I'm going to assume that this individual has considered his new assignment and he really wants to succeed and do well in his new level of ministry. Uh, what I don't want to think is that this individual is now speeding up the reconciliation process or I don't want to think that this individual is now interested in reconciling and, and really interested in making things right with his spouse because of the new ministry assignment. The concern here should be how to rebuild trust and confidence in my marriage after I've committed transgressions, period. It's not how do I fix it and rebuild trust and confidence because I'm being elevated in ministry. The concern should be how do I fix it? How do I rebuild trust and confidence in my marriage, period, after that I have messed up? Because the next assignment or season is not a concern if you don't get this fixed. The question should be, how do I reconcile my marriage, whatever those transgressions may be? Well, the first step in this reconciliation process is to honestly confess the fault. And when I say confess, I mean say the same thing about the fault that God would say. We have a tendency to say things like, I slipped, or I had an indiscretion, or the devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson used to say. No, the first thing you got to do in order to be reconciled, if you really want reconciliation, if you really have your mind on trust and confidence in each other, you've got to confess the fault. And that means talk about it and say the same things that God would say. Tell the truth about it and own your conduct. No cute words, no, no, none of that stuff. Own your conduct and talk about it just like God would. And then the next step is to try to honestly imagine how the conduct made your spouse feel. Honestly try to express to your spouse how you believe the conduct made her feel. 
And this is important because if a person will ever trust you, they have to feel like you get it. Let me say that again. You've you got to be able to express to your spouse how you believe the conduct made her feel. You got to try your best to get in her shoes. You got to try your best to get in her emotional state there. It's impossible. You can't do it, but you got to try your best to do it. And this is important because if she will trust you again, she has to feel like you get it. They won't even begin to open up their heart towards you if they don't feel like you get it. If you're able to say, I know I broke your heart and, and, and then just be descriptive in it. Use your imagination and describe how you believe she must feel. That'll begin to let her know that you get it. And after that, next you have to commit to not doing it again. Now if you say something like, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm going to try my very best. You're not building trust and confidence. If you say something like, uh, 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 all you're saying is, uh, uh, I, I'm going to do the best I can never to let it happen again. And, and you know, I can't make no promise. If you're going to say some stuff like that, all you're really saying is, I don't get it and it will happen again. You need to be able to plant your feet solidly in your commitment to not do the conduct again. You cannot engage in that behavior ever again. Next, you have to establish accountability to your spouse. It's not out of the question for your spouse to have access to your email, your phone, your social media, or any other account. It will be wise of you to inform your spouse of your whereabouts all the time. You know, a lot of people say, I deserve my privacy or whatever the case may be. There are very few times when I want some privacy from my wife. I'm pretty sure my wife can get into any account, social media, bank account, investment account. I'm pretty sure my wife can get into any account that I may have. Because I want her to know what's going on. I want her to have access to my information. I need her help in that way. I need her help when it comes to finances and business, so forth and so on. And listen, I don't mind her having these uh, uh, account accesses because I have no business saying anything that I don't want her to hear anyhow. If you want your spouse to trust you again, then don't give her a reason not to. You have to do all you can to let her know where you are, how long you're going to be there, and then be home when you say you're going to be home. How long will this need to go on? As long as the situation requires it. You're also going to need to be patient. When a man hurts a woman, the hurt goes deep into her soul. And the woman has a tendency to translate that hurt into I'm not good enough or you're going to leave me. So when that hurt is in the soul, when that hurt reaches the soul, when that soul hurt occurs and you do anything in the future, automatically something tells her he's going to leave you. And you're not good enough. So you're going to have to be patient, my friend. You're going to have to be patient.
This is going on in her. Yes, it's going on in her. But guess what? You helped it to happen. Now you have to take your time and help her to get delivered from this soul hurt. Like you say you've been delivered from transgressions. You got to help her get delivered from this soul hurt. Now this is about as deep as I have time to go uh, on tonight. And, and what I want you to realize is that in these steps, I'm describing repentance and the fruit of repentance. Over time, your heart will shine through and win her heart. And one more thing, whatever you do, whatever you do, never say something dumb like you should be over it by now. <laughs> That's a really dumb thing to say. You should be over it by now. So remember, if you messed up in the past, even if you think you've gotten over it, there's some steps you have to take to reconcile and rebuild trust. And it's a process and it happens over time. But first thing you got to do is you got to honestly confess it. You got to honestly imagine how the conduct made her feel and you have to honestly try to express it to her. Then you have to commit to not doing it again. And then you have to establish accountability of yourself to your spouse. And you must be patient. You must be patient. All right. Again, uh, uh, that's all the time I have to, for that. But uh, let's go on to the next question here. The next question asks, what is the most detrimental thing in a marriage and how can you combat it? So what this question is asking is, what is the most harmful, the most detrimental thing to a marriage and how do you combat it? Now, that one took me by surprise a little bit, I'll be honest with you. At first glance, this question seems like it can't be answered as it is. Seems like this question is just too wide out there. Just one thing that's most detrimental. How in the world do you answer that question? Surely there is not just one thing that is more detrimental than any other thing to a marriage. But as I kept thinking about that, as I pondered that question further, I remembered one thing that I've said for years. And that is, the reason for every single divorce is selfishness. Selfishness. A couple may think the divorce was because of an affair or some other inappropriate behavior. Truth is, the affair or whatever the behavior was, was a manifestation of selfishness. They may think the divorce was over finances. They may think the divorce was over something else. But whatever that external thing is, it was only a manifestation of, it was only an external symptom of internal selfishness a person steps out on their marriage because they were more determined to satisfy their own lust than to honor their marriage vow that's selfishness so what is the most detrimental thing to a marriage and how do you combat it selfishness is the most detri detrimental thing to a marriage all other insensitive, destructive, unhelpful, defeating behaviors are a manifestation of selfishness. 
And selfishness is all about a warped sense of self-gratification. I'm just going to feel good no matter how it impacts anybody else, no matter how it affects anybody else. Selfishness is so determined to feel good that a selfish person will break promises, will break vows, will step on people who love them and they claim to love. Selfishness will drive a person to do irrational things because they're chasing self-pleasure. It's all about them. No matter who or what it is, no matter what the relationship dynamic is, a selfish person makes the relationship all about them and their pursuit of pleasure. You know, marriage is about love. And love is about becoming the person that your spouse needs you to be so that they can become all that they need to be. You, love is about you becoming the person that your spouse needs you to be so that your spouse can become the person that they need to be. All they can be. And that's how Christ loved the church. He gave himself for the church so that the church could become all that she could be. But selfishness extinguishes love. Listen to me here. Selfishness extinguishes love. Let me make this plain. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us how love works. Love suffers long. Love cares more for others than self. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. Love doesn't swell up in pride. Love doesn't always look to take care of self more and before everybody else. Love is all the things that selfishness is not. As a matter of fact, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. So selfishness extinguishes love and is thus the most detrimental thing to a marriage. Now the original question was, what is the most detrimental thing to a marriage and how do you combat it? If you want to combat selfishness, you have to work on perfecting love. People have a hard time loving because they don't believe they will receive love in return. People have a hard time loving because they don't believe there's enough love to go around and by the time it gets around to them, everybody will have run out of love. <clears throat> They've been deceived by philosophies like take care of number one. They've been deceived by philosophies like if I don't take care of me, no one else will. People have a hard time loving because they've been abandoned and hurt and they haven't experienced love before. Combating selfishness requires real, true love. If you don't want to be selfish, if you want to get over selfishness, you have to experience real love yourself so that you can know you're worthy of love and so that you can know that there is enough love to go around. And the key to experiencing real, true love is to learn to trust God to love you. Yeah, the key to experiencing real, true love is to learn to trust God to love you. God is the only one who can love you like you truly deserve 
to need and need to be loved. God is the only one who can love you like you deserve to be loved. No other man or no other woman can love you like you deserve to be loved, like you need to be loved. They can do the best they can. And some of us, we do quite well at times, at times. But only God can get it right. And if you trust in God's ability to love you more than anybody else, you have room to love others. And you will know for sure that there is enough love to go around. And you'll no longer have to be selfish. So, what is the one thing that is most detrimental to a marriage than anything else? Selfishness. If I make the marriage all about me, I'm dooming my marriage. If I start doing a tit for tat, I'm dooming my marriage. If I start counting up who gets the best of who, I'm dooming my marriage. If I start keeping track of who's been wrong more times than others, I'm dooming my marriage. If I argue with my wife and won't stop until I'm right, I'm dooming my marriage. Why? Because all of those behaviors are all about selfishness. I'm promising you, anybody who makes their marriage all about them, they're a selfish person, and they're dooming their marriage. You want to get delivered from selfishness? Learn to trust God to love you. All right? Amen. Well, let's go on to the next question here. The next question asks, what do you do when your spouse doesn't want to follow the whole Bible, but picks and chooses what they want? How do you reconcile or agree with a spouse that does not believe or follow the whole Bible? Even after third-party counseling. Wow. Oh, my goodness. This question is the reason the Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked. 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, tells us, do not be unequally yoked. Being married to a person who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible can be a very difficult, a very trying experience. And you know it well because you're in it. So I know you know what I mean. Now, what's the key for you? If you're married to a spouse who doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible, who won't agree on the Bible, who likes to pick and choose what in the Bible they believe, if you've been to third-party counseling, so forth and so on, what do you do about it? Hmm. Here's what you do about it. You have to lean and depend on and you have to practice and have faith in the part of the Bible that teaches you how to love someone who doesn't believe the Bible. God is love. So if anything has a chance to work on something that is so deeply seated, it has to be love. Only love can change a heart. Hate can make a heart grow hard, but love can soften it. Love can win it. Only love can do that. So you have got to learn 
the Bible. You have got to lean and depend on the Bible. You have to practice and have faith in the Bible. And the part of the Bible that teaches you how to love someone who doesn't believe the Bible. As I said a few moments ago, that's how Christ loved the church. He gave himself for it to win it so that the church could become all that she could be. God gave his only begotten son to win every one of us sinners. And while we were at our worst, God gave us his best. He didn't wait till we became morally upright. He didn't wait till we got our lives together. He didn't wait till we made up our minds to serve him. Then he gave us his only begotten son. He gave us his only begotten son when we were deep in sin, destined for hell. He gave us his best. When we were at our worst. So the point is not even to try and get your wife to follow the Bible. The point is not even to try and get your wife to obey the whole Bible. The point is not even to try and reconcile the differences in beliefs in the Bible between the two of you. The point of this thing, if this thing is going to work, you're going to have to love your wife like Christ loved the church. So you've got to make sure that the Bible is your main influence. You've got to make sure that you're in the Bible for yourself and you're loving and the Bible is changing you in the person that she needs you to be to love her into submitting to the Bible herself. So the question that should be asked in a situation like this is, how do I love like God loves? In this situation. And that question does not even try to answer. What comes back to me in response. It's not concerned with that. It's only concerned with loving like God loves. And it trusts God for the results. Alrighty. Well I think I got time for one more question here. I've got time for about one more question. Let's deal with this one right quickly. Why is there. Not one clear definition of what it means to be married or in a relationship. Why are there so many variations when at the end of the day, everyone generally is asking the same thing? Well, I don't think everyone is asking the same thing, but I like the question. I love the question. Why is there not one clear definition of what it means to be married? Why are there so many vari variations of marriage? This is really a good question. And I'm going to deal with that because uh, I want to deal with this because that goes to the heart of who we are and what we are created for. The real short answer is what God prescribed for marriage does not gratify our desires for pleasure. Let's look at what God says about marriage. In the creation account in Genesis, in the second chapter, God put Adam to sleep, took a rib from him, made a woman. Then God says in chapter, in verse 24 of chapter 2, a man shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. From the beginning, God's prescription for and definition of marriage was one man and one woman. And then we look at 1 Corinthians 7 and 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. And verse 3 follows with husbands and wives should render due benevolence to each other. Due benevolence was a Bible word for describing sexual intimacy. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's express design for marriage was that a man and a woman are married. 
But strangely enough, seems like every time God desires things to be one way, man comes up with another way to do it. And that goes back to the Garden of Eden also. God told Adam, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve decided they had to eat the fruit because they thought they knew better than God. Listen, the pattern of man is whenever God says things ought to be one way, man decides, I'll feel better if I do it another way. And this is the essence of sin. Sin is a condition inside us that drives us to feel and act contrary to what God prescribes. And that includes marriage. Anything called marriage that does not fit what God prescribed is not marriage, it's sin. Whether or not we like it, whether or not we agree with it, anything that does not fit what God prescribed, which is a man and a woman, it doesn't mean that I don't love people by what I'm saying. It means their choices equate to sin. And a part of the sin condition is this internal drive to feel good. That's the flesh. I said a moment ago that man decides that feeling good is more important than obeying God. That's sin. And sin always shows up as disobedience to God. There's a part of us that struggles and fights to feel good. What God defined as marriage does not feel good enough, so man looks for other ways to feel good in relationships, and he wants to call that marriage. It shows up as men marrying men, women marrying women. I'll make this as plain as I can. There is one divinely ordained definition of marriage. A man and a woman in a covenant union until death parts them. Anything other than that is an expression of man choosing to feel good instead of obeying God. And that has always been, that is now, and that will always be sin. Hey, look, I'm out of time. I appreciate you joining me tonight. I hope this question and answer session has been beneficial to you. Again, if you want to hear it again, you can find the podcast on iTunes or any podcast player on your smart device. Just search The C.D. Hodges. Listen, email me at cdhodges.com, at hotmail.com, excuse me, cdhodges at hotmail.com. Let me know you hear me. I've got to get out of here. So glad you're with me. Remember, you can't have peace until you surrender your life to the Prince of Peace. God bless you. We're out.